sent messengers throughout the land to bring in all the soothsayers, the wizards, even the magicians. Standing in his yard was a beautiful young girl dressed in a black silk kimono. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you and to bring you these stories. It's going to be a great hour today. We're going to hear an ancient Japanese story told for you by the terrific storyteller Alton Chung. You're going to hear a story from Bonnie Greenberg called Minyo and the Moon Dragon, a Chinese tale. You're going to spend a day at the zoo with Laura Persian Rayner, and you're going to learn about a robot war in today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. You won't want to miss a word. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Alyssa Mingorance. Alyssa, it's great to have you with me. Hi. Let's talk a little bit about this Alton Chung story, the I spider weaver to. it's called, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, this story... Um, comes from Japan, and there's a man who's a farmer, and he saves a spider from a snake. And um, luckily, he also is in need of a weaver. And the spider happens to be a really excellent weaver, but he works in very <laughs> mysterious ways. <laughs> it's nice how that works out, right? Yeah. <laughs> would you do that? Would you save a spider from a snake, or would you just let that snake have that spider? I'm honestly really impressed that if he's out in a field, he could see a tiny spider. Right. You know? <laughs> Right? Like, whatever glasses he's using, maybe I need those. (laughs) (laughs) Alton Chung is the storyteller of his tale from Japan, the spider weaver. We're happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. Long time ago in ancient Japan, there was a farmer by the name of Yosaku-san, or Mr. Yosaku. Yosaku-san was in his fields early one morning. Compassionate Amaterasu, the goddess of the sun, was just creeping over the eastern hills. When Yosaku-san realized that a spider had formed its web between two of his cabbage plants... Well, that morning dew had settled in, and it looked as if that spider, that black, silver streaks down its sides, was sitting in a necklace of jewels. Oh, Yosaku-san leaned back upon his hoe and took in this glorious sight when he noticed movement behind the spider web. It was a big, black snake, and the snake was hungry, and it wanted spider for breakfast. Yosaku-san saw all of this, and his heart opened with compassion for the spider, and he went to go and shake his hoe at the snake to go and try and scare it away. But in doing so, the handle of the hoe got caught in the sleeve of his kimono, and his kimono ripped. But in the resulting confusion, that big black snake slithered off into the tall grass. The spider leapt off its web and went to hide under a cabbage leaf, but before it disappeared, it seemed to Yosaku-san as if the spider turned 
and bowed to him. A few days later, Yasako-san was sitting in his house when he heard someone calling to him from his front yard. Yasako-san! Yasako-san! Who could it be? He pulled his threadbare kimono around him, and he went to the shoji screen door, the rice paper screen door, and slid it open. Standing in his yard was a beautiful young girl, dressed in a black silk kimono shot through with silver threads. Ohayo, Yosako-san. I understand that, that you are in need of a weaver. Uh, I have some small skill with, with wharf and loom, and, and all I ask is for some food and, and a place to stay. Uh, in exchange, I would weave for you. Please, sir, let me serve you. Well, it was true that Yosako-san did need a weaver. So he accepted the young girl. He showed her to his weaving room, showed her his loom and a supply of cotton, and then he went off to work in his fields. But it was a hot, sticky day. Amaterasu, the goddess of the sun, was high in the sky, beating down upon Yosako-san. And at the end of the day, he was hot, he was tired and sweaty. But still, he stopped by the weaving room to see how the weaving maid had fared. Imagine his astonishment when there, on the work table, was not just one kimono, but ichi, ni, san, shi, go, roku, sechi, hachi, eight finished kimono, with fine needlework on the back. There were scenes of waves of grain flowing across a field. You could see individual grain stalks. There was a scene in which a stream flowed through a field, and you could see that as if that water was in constant motion. There was even a picture of Amaterasu in her journey across the sky. Isaku-san was absolutely amazed that anyone could ever even weave this much cloth, let alone finish these kimono with such fine needlework. Huh, 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 how are you able to weave so much cloth? Oh, Yasaka-san, that is a question you must never ask me. And you must also never watch me while I work. Well, over the next several days, Yasaka-san's wardrobe of kimono began to grow by leaps and bounds. Now, Yasaka-san was a curious man. And one day he pretended to go off to his fields to work. Instead, he took off his high wooden geta, his wooden slippers, and he tiptoed over to the window of the weaving room and peeked in. <gasps> and what he saw was not a weaving maid. What he saw was a big black spider with silver streaks down its side, weaving not just with its two legs, but with ich, ni, san, chi, go, roku, sichi, hachi, all eight of its legs whirling madly as it pulled thread out from its mouth and wove it into cloth on the loom. Yosaku-san, he recognized the spider. This was the spider that he had saved from that big black snake in his fields several days ago. And then he realized that in, in exchange for saving its life, the spider had come to weave for him. He also realized that his supply of cotton was getting rather low. And so Yosaku-san, the next morning, gathered up a big basket of vegetables, and he carried it across the mountain to the village. 
There he traded in that big basket of vegetables for a big bale of cotton. And he picked up that bale of cotton, and began heading back across the mountain to his farm. But it was a hot, sticky day. Amaterasu was in the sky, beating down upon him. And he paused to rest in the shade of a tree on his way home. He took off that bale of cotton, set it on the ground, and he rested. And as he rested, out from the tall grass there came a big black snake. And that snake wormed its way into that bale of cotton. Unbeknownst Yosaku-san, who, when he was finished resting, picked up that bale of cotton, and headed back to his farm. When he arrived at the farm, he presented the bale of cotton to the weaver maid, and she took it into the weaving room. And when she was alone, she closed the shoji screen door, the rice paper screen door, and then transformed himself back into a spider. And she unwrapped that bale of cotton, and she began to eat the cotton. Well, you see, she could take the cotton into her body and turn it into thread. And she ate, and she ate, and she ate, until she was almost finished with that bale of cotton, when suddenly, out from the bottom of the bale of cotton came... (laughs) Where's your farmer now, spider? I am going to eat you up. And that snake opened up its jaws wide, wide, showing off its big poisonous fangs. Well, the spider was so frightened that it leapt out through the window of the weaving room, and that snake wriggled on after her. The spider tried to run away, but it had eaten so much cotton that it could not run very fast or very far. And soon that snake cornered her. <laughs> it is over now, spider. You are mine. And the snake opened up its jaws wide, showing off its large, poisonous fangs. Meanwhile, up in the sky, compassionate Amaterasu, the goddess of the sun, was looking down upon this scene. She knew that the spider had been saved by Yosaku-san, and in exchange, the spider had come back to weave for him. She also knew how that spider had cleverly depicted her, Amaterasu, on the backs of some of Yosaku-san's kimonos. And her heart opened with compassion. And she reached down with a sunbeam and caught hold of a little bit of thread that was hanging out of the spider's mouth. And she pulled, and she pulled, and she pulled, until she lifted the spider up, up, up into the sky, far from the snapping jaws of the snake. And when the spider arrived in heaven, she was so grateful, so very grateful to Amaterasu, the goddess of the sun, that she began to weave for Amaterasu. She wove for Amaterasu a pillow, something upon which she could rest in her journey across the sky. And she called that pillow a cloud. And that is the reason why sometimes clouds look like big, puffy balls of cotton. That is also the reason why, in the Japanese language, the word for cloud is the same as the word for spider. Kumo. Alton Chung with a story called The Spider Weaver. A pleasure to listen to that story, not only with you, but with one of our assistant producers, Alyssa Mingurance. Alyssa, tell me what you love about that story. 
Well, what I love about that story is I think anytime I hear a story end with a character going up into the sky <laughs> and making something, it's always about stars, right? Which is lovely and magical and all those things. But, you know, clouds deserve love too. <laughs> and I, I thought that was so, like, charming and unexpected because I was thinking, oh, you know, she made a little constellation of the farmer or something. But <laughs> sure. I think clouds are so much more playful and uh, I love it. And what an interesting thing to associate clouds with spiders. That's that's yeah. a really interesting storytelling <laughs> thing, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. I'd love to listen to Alton Chung. You know, he tells, he sort of splits his storytelling energies between these terrific traditional stories like the one that we just heard mm -hmm. and these kind of meticulously researched stories of individual people that have caught his interest, either people that he knows or people that he discovers when he's studying history history, and he goes way down into those studies, recreating not only their stories, but their manner and their voice and things like that. I love to listen to an Alton Chung story, and this one was great fun to listen to as well. Thanks so much for bringing it to us, Alyssa. Absolutely. I love doing it. There's a lot more coming up here on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago you heard a story from the great storyteller Alton Chung, a story called The Spider Weaver. And there's a lot more coming up. You're going to spend a day at the zoo with Laura Persian Rayner. You're going to hear an old story from China called Minyo and the Moon Dragon. But first, because we know that sharing memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you to share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. We've got a memory here of mine. It's the memory of a robot war. I'll explain. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. The house where I grew up is still there, a tiny thing built in the 1870s and surrounded by enormous trees. The trees you can see long before you see the house, primarily the enormous elm in the front yard towering above the neighborhood. And the foothills are still there, of course, even though now they're covered in well-kept neighborhoods. When I was a kid, living in the house beneath that elm tree, the foothills were all scrub oak and sage and rabbit trails. We neighborhood kids would turn ourselves loose out there and build forts and find animal skeletons and tin cans, and we wouldn't come back until dusk. Other times, when things were getting a little bonkers in our tiny house, the family would head out into the hills on a good long ramble, my mom and dad and me and my brothers, Joe, Dave, and Josh, and baby Eliza, our little sister, would toddle along with us too, and those times were full of joking around and finding cool rocks and probably a little bit of bickering and every once in a while a cry of, I'm tired, how far is it till we get home? All the stuff you can imagine from a family ramble. And there were stories, too. My mom or dad would point to a rock that looked like a guy's face or something and say, make up a story about that rock. And we would. We all remember the ramble when my little brother Dave started talking about the hostile takeover of the earth 
by extraterrestrial robots called violators. The violators were engaged in a war with, well, with all sorts of robotic denizens of the town in which we lived. And in the spirit of making up stories about the things we saw, Dave's imagination had been sparked by telephone poles and by street lights and the big metal structures holding up power cables outside of town. It's those guys, of course, the big, elaborate metal utility structures that Dave called violators. They were the baddies in the story. Dave's imagination, the imagination of my little brother, is at the heart of a lot of our childhood memories, actually. Maybe you have someone like that in your home, the one with the imagination. We did. It was Dave. Dave could be counted on to say something strange or funny, something that lay delightfully askew to the mundane. He's the kid who, on a summer night out in the yard, hushed us all because he wanted to listen to the stars. He had heard the summer evening crickets chirping, and good heavens, didn't it sound like the kind of song the stars might sing? And once as a little kid, he was sick with a fever and went into my parents' bedroom in the middle of the night and announced to them that your blood is little tiny ladybugs. And when you have a headache, they all sit down in chairs and sing a fever-induced psychedelia from a three-year-old and also kind of memorable. So now, on this walk, we're getting all this stuff about a robot war and we ate it up. Like I said, the violators, the big metal power line structures outside of town were the villains. But there were other characters too. A regular old wooden telephone pole with no cross piece on the top. There were plenty of those in my little town. Dave called them iBots. It was a simple name and a perfect one. A pole with a cross piece at the top was a T-Bot. A pole with a street light extending out from it was called an iBot bomb dropper. And it went on and on. His imagination had created this robot war in which the warriors were more or less oblivious to us. And this war, of course, going on all around us. Armies of robot warriors in lines everywhere we went. My brother Joe tried to get in on the act by adding his own robots and naming them, but they didn't stick. And I tried to get in the game, too, with a whole different mythology about rocks and pebbles or something. But the robot war eclipsed us all. Dave got all the cool points that day. And again, we still remember bits and pieces of it. Every once in a while, when the family gets together, someone will say, Hey, remember the violators and the iBots and... Grown-ups all, we talk about it, and it always opens up a lot of great memories for us of wandering those rabbit trails in the foothills and of growing up in our little town, a place from which we are all living far away. And memories of Dave, too, who never grew out of being that guy into whom we still can turn and often do for something strange or funny something that lies delightfully askew to the mundane. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. 
thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. You know, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people in your life, whether around the living room or the kitchen table. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. I'm going to bring you a story from China coming up in a moment from Bonnie Greenberg, a story called Minyo and the Moon Dragon. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways through the telling of stories and the handing down of stories from telling to telling around the living room or the kitchen table to the stories that we find in great books, even the great memories that come back into our minds as we enjoy great food or great music. And of course, one of the ways that stories come into our hearts and minds is through the things that we see on screen. We're always happy to have Cole Wissinger to talk with us about uh, about great movies. Cole, it's great to have you. Hello, Sam. I, got, I do love movies. I always got a story for you. And I got I got so excited. Before the mics went hot, we were kind of chatting about the movie that we were going to talk about. And I got so excited because this was a favorite of my grandfather's. Oh, boy. My grandfather. Am I we showing my age here? I thought I was supposed to be the young one on the show. <laughs> my granddad would, would show us this movie. On, he was an early adopter of VHS technology. Okay. Right? And so this was one of those DV, one of those VHS tapes that was part of my my early experience, and of course, we're talking about the film. Not just the one VHS tape either, because it's a mad, 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 mad world. Came on two two VHS tapes. Had an intermission in between. (laughs) That's the movie that I want to talk about because it was such an important part of me growing up because I had a father and and grandparents that also shared it with me as well. Yeah. And of course, the movie predates both of us. Uh, Yes, we should probably make that clear. It comes from 1963, starring Spencer Tracy and starring, you know what? Starring a lot of people. Yeah, starring just about everybody. I mean, this is why I think of it when I get older. and my love of movies, I idolized my older cousin and my dad and the people that could watch movies like this one with such an ensemble cast and say, oh, that's Don Knotts from Andy Griffith show or a yeah. hundred other things. Or, oh, that's such and such from something else. And I wanted to be that guy so much. Like this was, <laughs> I mean, at the time I watched this movie, I had probably seen you know, four movies in my life. And so I didn't know who these people were from, but I knew how cool my cousin and my dad and my Because they could say, oh, that actor is from such and such a thing. It looked like a deep, it looked like deep, deep knowledge. It's true. And that's what I aspired to. And so as I watch more and more movies, I love being that guy. And maybe it's like the, maybe it's the just feeling of, you know, that's how I feel good is knowing things or whatever. But that's where it comes from is watching this movie as a kid, seeing my cousins pointed out and everything. And, and to be sure, in addition to that joy for any age, you can enjoy slapstick. Oh yeah. People falling over everyone in casts by the end going on a, a, a wild goose chase. That's right. So many iconic moments that you have in sort of your movie lexicon that you think, oh, that you, that you for a second wonder what movie it was from and you think, oh no, that was from It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, right? Oh yeah. I mean, and, and so many too. things kind of trace themselves back to that comedy experience. And it's weird seeing the parody first. Too, because this movie parodies all of the adventure and chase movies of that 50s and 60s era. And so now when I watch the serious versions, I think, oh, this just looks like a mad, 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 mad world. 
Oh, but there was the other way around. Right, that's right. <laughs> the movie, of course, follows the adventures of a bunch of hapless motorists, really, who come across this guy who has Surely crashed. Yeah, who has crashed his car and who is about to die, and he announces to them that there's a treasure, and then everybody's on the hunt for it. Right. And X does not mark the spot. It's under a big W. It's under the he big says. W. That's right. <laughs> and of course, you know what kind of movie you're going to be seeing as soon as you. You know, the guy, uh, the, the guy who has crashed his car uh, says something about kicking the bucket, right? And, and then, then he, kicks, and then a he bucket. kicks a bucket. Yeah. And you think, yep, now I know what kind of movie I'm watching. <laughs> and, and it follows from there just matching that wit and humor and just it, it almost seems like easy humor sometimes. Yeah. But for a little kid, it was right up my alley. I felt like I was getting the jokes, and I felt like I was in on something when I was watching this. And as you, as you pointed out, a a a, a comic a, a comic setup that can maintain itself over not one VHS tape but two VHS tapes. It's a long for to sit a kid down for yeah. two hours for for over three hours as yeah. the movie runs. Um, you got to maintain humor and bits and just keep track of everyone. Yeah. And I think it really does. Like, I can't remember even as a small child watching this movie and ever feeling boredom. Like, th this is the the opposite of a boring movie. Yeah. It is constant <laughs> laughs and yucks and, and adventure. And you talked about it as being not just a, a, a favorite funny movie, right? But being kind of foundational for you yes. in your love of film, right? Partly because you saw some of this kind of esoteric film knowledge that some of the people in your family had and you wanted to be that guy. Yeah, I mean, if we want to, like, broaden it, I think the one of the reasons I'm in the movie review business today it could be traced back to this movie and wanting to know who all these people were and why they were in this movie and why it was so entertaining to see Phil Silvers and Mickey Rooney standing next to each other. Like, I wanted... Yeah, I wanted to know <laughs> that about movies, and now I feel like I kind of do it, at least for my generation. I, I still can go back and watch this and not match quite everyone, Yeah. Um, but when Rat Race came out in the 2000s, which was a lesser version of this, but you know, a right. similar team a bunch of actors up and have them go on a chase— I definitely recognized them. Sure, and other movies like Scavenger Hunt and things like that all kind of trace their roots. Run did yeah, this a little bit. back to it's a Mad Men, Mad Men world. And when we're talking about an all-star cast, I mean, good heavens, we're talking about Jimmy Durante and Buster Keaton and Don Knotts and Peter Falk and Jerry Lewis and Carl Reiner and I Jonathan mean, Jonathan Winters is very yeah, I mean, noticeable. You name them, and they're in this comic madcap adventure. And for everyone else they're that actor from like what they're actually known for right but to me they're from it's a mad 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 <laughs> well thank you for taking us back there again at the moment you mentioned the the film i remembered watching it on vhs with my grandfather it's always such a pleasure to have cole with us thanks for joining us on the apple scene anytime Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with our friend Cole Wissinger. We'll have him back as soon as we can. Lots more coming up. You're going to hear a story from China called Minyo and the Moon Dragon, a story told for you by Bonnie Greenberg. It's coming up. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. 
Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today on The Appleseed. A moment ago, a conversation with Cole Wissinger about an old classic film. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Coming up, we've got a story called Minyo and the Moon Dragon by Bonnie Greenberg. And in this story, a brave child named Minyo decides that she needs to save her village, her village facing a serious problem that only the dragon on the moon can stop. How does... One reach the moon dragon, however. There's not an elevator, but as it turns out, you can take the stairs. Here's the story. Bonnie Greenberg with Minyo and the moon dragon here on the Appleseed. Long ago, before there were stars, only the sun, the earth, and the moon were spinning in the black sky. One day, seven wise men hurried to see the emperor of China. They were breathless. Mighty emperor, mighty emperor, the moon, it's falling from the sky and will soon crash into the earth. We don't know why, and we don't know how to stop it. Immediately, the emperor sent messengers throughout the land to bring in all the soothsayers, the wizards, even the magicians. But no one knew what to do. About that time, an old lady traveled into town one day. She came from the far mountains, and when she heard the moon was falling, she asked to be taken directly to the emperor. Mighty Emperor, near my home in the far mountains, there is a cobweb staircase to the moon. It is said that people used to climb it in the old days. They would visit the moon dragon, who lives on the moon. Why, they would bring him diamonds. But the staircase got old and wobbly. It began to sag. People were afraid and stopped going. Maybe a very small, light person could climb it now and ask the moon dragon if he could stop the moon from falling. Oh, I know what you're thinking. You yourself would like to go. All of us would, but great emperor... We must find someone who is very small and light and fast. For you see, that cobweb staircase must be climbed in one night because by day the staircase is invisible. And so once more, Messengers were sent throughout the land to find the lightest person for this job. But all the small light people were afraid, and they hid in cellars and cupboards, in barrels and boxes, why some even hid in rolled-up carpets. One by one, the messengers came back empty-handed, and the moon, it was getting bigger and brighter as it came closer and closer to the earth. On her way home to the far mountains, the old woman passed a small hut 
There, in the front of that little cottage, was a small girl weaving a black silk rope. She was so small and light that it seemed only her heavy shoes kept her from floating away. Oh, she's the one. Yes, she's the one. Dear girl, what is your name? I am Mignot. You see these silk ropes? I weave them with my family. Only no one can afford to buy them any more. We don't have very much money. Perhaps you would like to buy one of my silk ropes. The old woman told Mignot about the cobweb staircase and the moon dragon. Mignot, it would be very dangerous, but the emperor would reward you well. Oh, I've always wanted an adventure, and a reward could really help my family. Yes, I'll do it. Mother, father. Mignot said goodbye to her parents and went with the old woman to the palace. The minute she got there, she was weighed on golden scales. The tailors came to measure her from top to bottom for her new climbing clothes. They made her a green silk suit, and they stuffed it full of goose down so it would be warm in the cold night air. She had trousers, boots, a warm jacket, and the whole thing weighed less than a newborn kitten. Now, Mignot, listen. You must tread very carefully on the cobweb staircase. It can only be seen by the night light of the moon. It's old. It's fragile. Some steps are even missing. Mignot made a silk rope ladder, and she practiced climbing every free moment. The next day, Mignot, the emperor, the wise woman, and the whole court traveled to the far mountains. And soon, the bare stony heights were covered with colorful tents. Oh, there were yellow ones, red, pink, and green. And there was one special tent made of black velvet. That night, the sun went down and as the moon came up, everyone could see the cobweb staircase. It was so beautiful. Everyone stared at it all night long. It was so thin and wispy. It looked as though a puff of air could blow it away. And high above, the moon hung cold and empty in the dark sky. When the sun came up, the staircase vanished. And that's when Mignot went to sleep in her dark black velvet tent. She slept all day. And as the sun began to set, they awakened her and gave her her green climbing suit. Tell me, what do you think the moon dragon likes to eat? Oh, I don't know, Mignot. Very little grows on the moon. Perhaps some moon dust. 
Well, I think I'll take some vegetables with me. Let me have some green and red peppers and perhaps some carrots. And she placed all of those in a bag that she tied around her waist. Then she put raisins and rice cakes in her pockets. The emperor gave her a diamond for the moon dragon. Oh, that diamond was as big as a hen's egg. She put the diamond in the pocket with the raisins. The staircase appeared in the darkening sky, and everyone held their breath as Mignot put her foot on the first step of the cobweb staircase. Then she took another step, and then another. The staircase swayed, and she began to climb. The night air tingled and hummed around her, and a surprise screech owl flew by. She didn't look up, and she didn't look down. On and on she went, counting hundreds of steps. Some were so badly broken that she had to take two steps at a time, and once she slipped and the weight of the diamond almost made her fall. She stopped, afraid to breathe. Then she pushed that diamond further into her pocket and climbed higher still. Suddenly, the steps seemed brighter. Was it almost sunrise? Was the staircase about to vanish? She looked up, and there was the moon. She jumped onto the still and silent moon, and she stared at all the dusty rocks and the beautiful pale moon flowers. Then she saw the cave. She tiptoed inside. Moon dragon, are you there? She hoped he would be smaller than the earth dragons, and she hoped he'd be friendly too, but her heart was pounding. She called once more. Moon dragon, are you there? <coughs> Is someone calling me? Minyo looked as the dragon walked around the corner. Why, he wasn't like an earth dragon at all. Why, his skin was opalescent and misty, and all the colors shone through. He looked like he had swallowed a rainbow. He had blue eyes. <gasps> They were as blue as lapis lazuli. His pointed teeth and silver claws were all made of silver. And his wings, why, they were made of spun gold. Mignot bowed politely. I am Mignot. Oh, well, it's so nice to see you. Oh, people used to come and visit all the time. Bring me diamonds. No one comes now. I haven't seen anyone for a hundred years. Well, Moon Dragon, that's because the cobweb staircase is very wobbly. It's not safe for people to climb anymore. But I've come to ask your help. You see, the moon is falling into the earth. Can you make it stop? Oh, <clears throat> well, let's go outside and see. I hadn't noticed. I don't go out much. Oh, I see what you mean. We must do something at once. Well, the wise men couldn't think of anything. Then we must. I know. You could make a giant wind machine on Earth 
and blow the moon away. Mm. Or, or maybe great flocks of birds could pull silk ropes tied to the moon and take it to its proper place. Mm. Maybe you could make huge firecrackers and bring them to the moon and shoot it far away from the earth. Oh, moon dragon, then the moon might go too far and be lost forever. Why, you'd be floating alone in the black sky. Um, that's true. Well, Mignon, you know, I'm getting hungry. Let's eat for a while and then we'll think some more. I'm afraid I only have stewed moonflowers to eat, Mignot, and they aren't very tasty. But I have something. Look, I've brought vegetables. The moon dragon looked at the vegetables and then touched them lightly. Oh, what are they? Well, the red one is a red pepper, the green one is a green pepper, and the orange one is a carrot. Go ahead, try one. The moon dragon smiled, and he ate up all the carrots. Oh, this is delicious, just delicious. Maybe you could bring some more, Mignot. Mignot tried the stewed moonflowers just to be polite. Ugh, they tasted like boiled cotton. Then Mignot remembered her rice cakes. Oh, moon dragon, try these. And I forgot to tell you, the emperor sent you this. And she pulled the diamond out of her pocket. Oh, yes. Yes, like I said, people used to bring me diamonds all the time. But you know, a long time ago, I swept them all over to this side of the cave. I can't use them for anything. Oh, of course not. Moon Dragon, you'd tip over if you tried to wear them. I nearly tipped off the cobweb staircase with just one diamond in my pocket. That's it. That must be it. The diamonds are so heavy that now that they're all in the same place, they're making the moon tip over and fall into the earth. Come on, Mignot, let's get rid of them. With that, the beautiful moon dragon and Mignot gathered up armfuls of the diamonds and threw them as far away from the moon as they could. The diamonds went spinning and flashing and dazzling out into the black sky. Oh, it took a long time to empty that cave. But finally, all the diamonds were scattered across the sky, glittering and gleaming. The earth already looked smaller, and the cobweb staircase was straight and taut. Well, look at that. We've stopped the moon from falling. Oh, and look. We've made the sky so beautiful. I wonder if it will stay that way forever. Oh, I hope so, Mignot. It will remind me of you when you have gone. As they walked to the cobweb staircase, Mignot had an idea. Moon Dragon... My family can weave silk ropes to make the staircase strong and safe. Then lots of people can come and visit you again, and they can bring vegetables. Why, Moon Dragon, you'll never be lonely again. I'd like that. But look, it's almost done, and you must start at once. 
go, child. I'll watch you all the way. Minyo bowed to the moon dragon and stepped onto the cobweb staircase. The earth looked very far away. Goodbye, moon dragon. Goodbye, Minyo. Come back soon. The dragon's silver claws flashed in the starlight as he waved goodbye. Minyo sped down the steps, past the twinkling new stars. And no one was happier that night than Minyo and the Moon Dragon. Minyo and the Moon Dragon, a story told for you by Bonnie Greenberg, a tale about a rather extraordinary event, yet sometimes the most cherished memories we carry about are simple moments. Perhaps you cherish the memories of baking with your grandmother, going to the park with a sibling, or hearing a great story with a friend. And our final story for today is A Day at the Zoo by Laura Pershing Rayner, about how a simple day at the zoo with her sister turned into a fantastic story and memory that she loves to revisit from time to time. What's your favorite summer destination? The zoo? Grandpa's house? Your own backyard? How have those places shaped you into the person that you are today? Something to think about as we listen to Laura Persian Rainer with A Day at the Zoo here on The Appleseed. When I was a little girl, I grew up right across the street from the Detroit Zoo. Now in those days, the zoo was free and my little sister Lisa and I would go there often. When we were very young, our Grandpa Julius took us to the zoo, and he liked to rest on a wooden bench under the shady oak trees right in front of the polar bears. There was one polar bear with great big paws that Grandpa Julius would say, "'Looks just like my Uncle Mendel in the old country.' And we would watch that bear slowly climb the tall, rocky ledge, dive off into the deep pool of water with an enormous splash, and Grandpa Julius would clap and say, Good jump, Mendel! Now, when my mom took us to the zoo, she would sit us on the bench in front of the elephants because she knew we loved to watch baby Lula, the littlest elephant with the huge flappy ears. My mother, on the other hand, liked to watch another kind of animal at the zoo, the ones that wore Bermuda shorts and P.F. flyers. She'd say, girls, those are the most fascinating animals of all. When a family would stroll by and the children would be licking those great big lollipops that they bought at the zoo, my mother would say, oh, that's a disgrace. How could they buy their children lollipops? Don't they know their teeth are going to rot and fall out of their mouths? How can they give them lollipops that are bigger than their heads? And my little sister Lisa and I would sit there munching on our apples, wanting nothing more in the whole wide world than a rainbow swirl lollipop that was bigger than our heads. Now, when I was ten and my sister was eight, my mother decided we were old enough and smart enough to be able to go to the Detroit Zoo all by ourselves. We were excited. It was the middle of July, a beautiful, warm summer day. My mother packed us our favorite lunches, cream cheese and grape jelly sandwiches on white bread with orange high C, and she gave each of us two nickels, one nickel for the train ride at the zoo, and the second nickel 
for emergencies only. We put the change in our pockets, we grabbed onto our sack lunches, we got onto our stingray bicycles, and took off. We crossed Ten Mile Road very carefully, parked our bikes in front of the entrance to the zoo, walked into the entrance right up to the train tracks, took out our first nickel, and rode the zoo train all the way around, waving to the shaggy buffaloes and the prickly porcupines, until we came to the very back of the zoo where the zebras lived. Then we took out our emergency nickels and rode the train all the way back to the front of the zoo. We then walked through the shady picnic area, went to see the camels, and walked to the baboons. We loved this one little baboon, because we would jump up and down right in front of him and sing, It's howdy doody time, it's howdy doody time, and he would throw back his head and show us his ugly teeth and laugh and laugh. Then we came to the elephants to see baby Lula. Now, by the time August came around, we had saved enough money from our allowance to buy a great big bag of peanuts to feed baby Lula. And we were standing there on that hot day, tossing one peanut after another, watching her reach down with her long trunk and pop that peanut into her goofy, grinning mouth and crunch. And I said, hey, Lisa, maybe the ostriches are hungry. And we walked over to the place where the ostriches lived, and there was a high stone wall surrounding them. I was very tall for my age, and if I stood on my tiptoes, I was able to stretch right over that stone wall. And I took one peanut, and I stretched my arm out, and I said, Anybody hungry? And one ostrich turned and looked at us with her dark eyes. She came loping over gracefully, and she stretched out her long, skinny neck and grabbed that peanut and grabbed my finger, too. I let out a scream, and when I pulled my hand back, my finger was dripping blood. My little sister grabbed onto my arm and dragged me over to the concession stand, where a nice man took us inside, washed off my finger, wrapped it round and round with white gauze until it was the size of a pickle. And I was trying to be brave, trying not to cry. But he took one look at me and he said, You know, I think there's only one thing that would cheer you up. And he gave me a rainbow swirl lollipop that was bigger than my head. For the rest of that day, my little sister Lisa and I walked around the zoo, visiting with all the animals, taking turns licking that lollipop. And no matter how many turns we took, that lollipop never seemed to get any smaller. After a couple of hours, my sister Lisa looked up at me and said, Laura, my tongue hurts. And I said, I know, but we've got to finish the lollipop before we go home. You know what Mom will do with it if we bring it home with us. So we walked around and around, taking turns licking the lollipop. After about another hour, Lisa said, Laura, this doesn't taste so good anymore. I said, I know, but we have to finish it. We stayed at that zoo all day long. Pretty soon the families were starting to leave, and 
The men in the green uniforms and the little carts were telling everyone it was time to go home. I said, Lisa, what are we going to do? We can't take the lollipop home with us. I know. I grabbed Lisa's arm and took her to the place right across from Baby Lula, where there was a big, thick bush standing right next to a garbage can. We squeezed in between the two and squatted down right in that prickly bush and took turns licking the lollipop. Pretty soon, it got very quiet. There were no people sounds anymore, just the sounds of the animals. We could hear the elephant's huge feet crunching over the peanut shells, and we could hear the cries of the peacocks. And then, all of a sudden, two big strong hands came through the bush, grabbing onto us, and a low voice said, Hey, Saul, I found two more over here, same place as yesterday. And my little sister Lisa and I were escorted out of the zoo. As we passed by that little baboon, he just looked at us and threw back his head and laughed. Then we had another problem. We got on our bikes, but I said, Lisa, maybe we could take the lollipop home with us if we could somehow hide it from Mom. I grabbed onto the stick of the lollipop and then held onto my bicycle handle, but that lollipop was still so big, I was sure that I was going to drop it and it would break on the ground. So then I took the stick of the lollipop and I put it between my teeth. And I tried to ride home that way, but every time a breeze came along, my long hair would stick to the lollipop. So then I stuck that lollipop right underneath my arm and rode home the rest of the way. When we got just a few blocks from home, we saw our mother running towards us. She had been so worried about us, she said, How could you be this late? And she gave us big hugs and then started to yell. On the way home, she noticed the lollipop. And when we got there, she lifted up my arm. She pulled that sticky lollipop off of my skin and threw it in the trash. And that was the last time we were allowed to go to the zoo all by ourselves that summer. But a few months later, on a beautiful, bright October day, my mother said we could go back on our own if we promised to be home by 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We were so happy. We got on our stingray bicycles free at last and rode to the zoo. We walked through the zoo, saying hello to the camels, stopping to see our friend the baboon, and then to see baby Lula. As we were watching baby Lula with her big flappy ears, I turned to where the ostriches lived, and I saw a great big sign. It said, Danger! Don't feed the ostriches. Well, the years passed by, and as Lisa and I grew up, we spent less and less time at the zoo. When we were teenagers, we were at a party one evening right on the other side of the zoo. And the crowd was gathered there, eating and talking, when all of a sudden there was a gasp, and everybody looked up into the trees. What is that? There, swinging from branch to branch, was a big baboon that had escaped from the zoo. My sister Lisa and I looked at each other across the crowd. We knew who that was. It was that same baboon. He was throwing back his head and showing all of his big teeth, and we knew 
He was remembering that day, long ago, when we got kicked out of the zoo. And he was laughing at us. A Day at the Zoo, a story told for you by Laura Pershing Rayner. What a pleasure to bring you that story, as well as Bonnie Greenberg's telling of the story from ancient China, Minyo and the Moon Dragon. And, of course, uh, you heard uh, at the top of the hour the story from Alton Chung called The Spider Weaver. A pleasure also to talk with Cole Wissinger and to bring you an entry in the Radio Family Journal about my brother's robot war. We hope you've enjoyed the hour. We've sure enjoyed being with you. Visit us online at byuradio.org slash appleseed for an archive of episodes, thousands of stories for your listening pleasure anytime you like. You can take them with you on your mobile device. Or, of course, you can Google the Appleseed podcast and subscribe for something new just about every day. The uh, producer of the Appleseed is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's Sam. Just one more thing before we go. There's so much produced by BYU Radio that you're sure to enjoy, including Treasure Island 2020, the swashbuckling, time-traveling pirate podcast in 10 parts. You can find it by Googling it. We'll see you next time.